doing today is we are going to do lessons 19 and 20 and moving to the next section, which is the anthropological considerations, trying to establish an adequate anthropology. And so in the outline that I gave you all, I changed a couple of things up, but it's not going to be uh, significant. Today, we're going to spend the whole time just basically going over anthropology. A lot of it will be a review of things that y'all hopefully have talked about in, um, in philosophy, and some of it will be new, but all of it crucial, not only for understanding the moral life, but a lot of it's going to become very crucial uh, as foundation for sexual ethics. So let's talk about the question of man, the human person. As we've seen so far, dogma cannot be separated from morality. And what we believe about God impacts what we believe about who we are as humans and impacts on how we ought to act. And so we've kind of already seen it, looking at the human person in relation to Christ, the Father, and the Spirit. Um, and this is going to affect our anthropology, and it's going to affect our morality. The human person is at the center of moral theology as a moral agent. And so if we're going to have an adequate moral theology, we have to have... Uh, an adequate anthropology. Um, hold on a second. And because um, our, our action flows from our being. If we want to understand what you should do with a hammer, you ought to understand what a hammer is. And so if we want to understand how humans should act, we have to understand who we are. And so Human beings, as we're going to sort of argue, are primarily moral agents. Um, we, we have the capacity to make moral choices. But the issue, or part of the issue that we've already alluded to, of the fact that this crisis in moral theology and the confusion we're facing is directly connected to the confusion we have over the human person is, over a proper anthropology. And so no wonder things are going to be confused about how we should act if we don't know who we are. And so we find ourselves in this really crisis of anthropology. If you look at Gaudium Spes 4 to 10, it'll talk a lot about that, about some of the issues here in the 60s that still impact us today. And I'll go over just a list of them, uh, but we'll go over a lot more when we talk about sexual ethics. The impact of the two world wars. Uh, and the ideologies that went along with that really warped the way we saw the human person, particularly the after effects of the Shoah. The rise of atheism um, and the denial of faith. When we deny that God exists, if man is in the image of God and we don't believe God exists, then we don't know who we are. We're not going to understand the human person unless it's in relation to our creator. The spread of the culture of death of course, which can kill any sense of right or wrong. Materialistic and deterministic views of man, Darwinism, man is a random product of evolution, the hedonistic view of man, the Freudian view, uh, where man is, is driven by a sexual pleasure. Materialism and consumerism, man is defined by what he owns. And here, of course, that the market dictates morality. 
all of this killing off the transcendent and the supernatural where mine, man, uh, defines himself by what he can purchase and he finds happiness in his material goods. The threat of the scientific empiricism and technology which creates this illusion of control. Why do I need God? Why do I need this hocus pocus to pray for sickness to go away when we can just go get medicine? Uh, the technocratic imperative, which we're going to talk about um, in bioethics. If we can do it, we must be do it. We must do it. And it creates this whole mentality of control and a lack of a sense of wonder. Man is reduced to a disembodied will. Certain attitudes or negative attitudes towards the body. Um, because, as we'll see, the body restricts our freedom. And then uh, we're going to see a lot more of this um, in sexual ethics uh, with Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But regardless of this whole sort of problem that we face historically, philosophically, man is confused about who he is, man and woman, we're going to be inclusive here, we are confused about who we are and what we're destined for. And so this was the task of John Paul II particularly in theology of the body, not to tell us how to have sex, not to tell us all these things. The main purpose of theology of the body was to offer an adequate anthropology. So you can almost say that these two lessons are going to be the basic tenets of an adequate anthropology, which grounds or in a certain sense, maybe it's even rooted in the dignity of the human person. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to understand the human being, the human person. I'm going to use the terms interchangeably, although we can see that there, there are some differences there. We're going to look, particularly here through the catechism, what are the essential elements of man and woman from a philosophical perspective, and then mostly in the second hour and our second lesson from the theological perspective. So let's talk about understanding the human person or the human being. The first is, I mean, you can look at it from the perspective of ontology. Man exists. We have being. And our, particip our being is a participation in God who is being itself. I am who am, the name Yahweh. Uh, and as we talked about with the problems of nominalism, if you don't have a proper understanding of analogy, you're not going to understand this. So that we drive our being from God, he sustains us in existence, and we're good. As humans, we're good because God, we share in God's goodness. In Genesis, God has looked at creation, he's looked at man and woman, and called us good because we share in his own goodness. And that if we look at our existences, we'll see more. It's a gift. We don't deserve to come into being. All of creation is a gift. The, the, the sacrament of creation points to the gift of love, that God created us out of love. Um, and he is the one who keeps us in existence. But being human, again, from a philosophical perspective, means that we share a human nature. And we've talked about these things again, the, the, the particular versus the universal. 
uh, and the roots of nominalism. We believe that humans share this metaphysical category of humanity and that we can look at particular instances of human beings and come to understand this nature that we all share. What we'll see later when it comes to freedom, how, how would y'all say that this concept of nature can be seen in opposition to postmodern views of ethics and freedom? Correct, yeah. So if we say, like, okay, we can look at the human body and we can understand there's a law written in there where penis meant for vagina. We can kind of see that. That's part of the natural law. But if there's no human nature, penis not ordered towards vagina. Penis and vagina not ordered towards anything. And so there's a free-for-all. And then if we continue, we deny human nature. Well, then the body, then eventually, as we'll see with sexual ethics, the body doesn't mean mean anything. And so all that matters is that you're a disembodied will and your obligation to is express your individuality through your own choices. And we're going to really look at that when we get to freedom and truth. Um, So what are some of the qualities of human nature? And we're going to get into this a little bit later on. But we know some. We're rational. We're moral agents, the spousal meaning of the body, we're social and political beings, and we have natural inclinations, something very important from that Thomistic perspective. But most importantly, that our nature is ordered towards an end, a telos, beatitude, and that there's a teleological understanding of our bodies and how we are and ought to act. So yeah, we're rational creatures, but still we share an animal nature. Um, we can look at our bodies and see we're different than the animals, but we still have a lot of the same passions, desires, and needs. The difference would be that we uh, are moral agents and we have a deeper self-awareness, which we'll look at too. But the term that we, we use is not just human being, but human persons. So I could get into a very, very long discussion about this, but I would imagine y'all talked about personhood, didn't you, in, in philosophy, or you should have talked about it. Person from the Greek word prosopon, which means you know, the mask, the personhood. What is the classical definition that we tend to use from Boethius and and as Catholics to define the person? Correct, yes, an individual substance of rational nature. And so, of course, this definition focuses on the, the individuality of the person, um, that the, the substance is subsists in itself and is incommunicable. Uh, the person is singular and, and unrepeatable. And you can have a whole year long of understanding this philosophical definition of person, which we're not going to really necessarily get into. How many types of persons do we believe there are? How many types of persons? Human person, what else? Angelic person, what else? Divine, Divine. three types of persons. Uh, And of course, a lot of our understanding of person, particularly as persons in relation, come from the early Trinitarian uh, debates in the church. So where where the, the, the persons of the Trinity are defined by their relations. And so we, in a certain sense, from a Trinitarian anthropology, 
can also be seen not only as individual substances, but from that Trinitarian dimension as persons who exist in relationship. We are individual manifestations of that universal human nature. And so, yes, we are capable of entering into relationship. And this is where the Second Vatican Council and John Paul II sort of advances the ball on, on, on the field, where instead of focusing just on rationality or focusing on the individual substance, substantial nature, we are persons in relation. Gaudium et Spes 12, for by his innermost nature, man is a social being. And if he does not enter into relations with others, he can neither live nor develop his gifts. We, we have to exist in relation. Of course, a proper sort of anthropology from the Thomistic perspective would say that we are relational and social beings. But we'll still see more about that. But in the 20th century, particularly in the latter part of the 20th century, there's been a big debate over human beings versus human persons. What is this debate generally centered around? Or what does it stem from? Abortion, which as we'll see in bioethics is generally a bunch of garbage. You know, this is some fake distinction that's used to justify killing children in their embryonic stage of development, not something which we need to really get into. But from an ethical perspective, this, this seeing the dignity of the human person and how we are different than other beings in nature uh, help us to derive the personalistic norm. We don't treat persons as a means to an end. We treat them as persons, not as things. If y'all want some really interesting reflections, if y'all like the philosophy of personhood, uh, I can recommend Robert Spamon's book. Uh, if you, did y'all get to read that? Spamon, S-P-A-E-M-A-N-N, uh, great Catholic German philosopher uh, who wrote a book on personhood uh, with a lot of very interesting reflections. Did y'all read that at UD? Well, yeah. Spayman has written a lot of stuff, uh, but I can give you some if you want to read it, but they have a copy of it in the, in the library. So let's get into these different aspects of the human person. And, and in a certain sense, I am going to be really going, basing it on the catechism, but really, y'all, one of the best explanations of what does it mean to be a human person is that document communion stewardship that I, I told you all to read that really fleshes out a Catholic anthropology. Um, we're also going to take derive from Thomas, the, the, the first part of the Summa, questions 75 to 89. Now, as I said, I am not a straitjacket Thomist. I believe we need to derive a lot of wisdom and teaching from Thomas, but our anthropology and our understanding of who we are as humans has developed since the 13th century. All right? We've got a lot of deeper understanding, but we are, I'm going to try to take John Paul II, Thomas, the Catechism, and put that all together to give the basic elements of anthropology. So the first, and, and I guess in a certain sense I've already talked a little bit about it when it comes to the idea of a human person, but the first sort of really basic principle is that human beings are composed of that substantial unity of body and soul. Body and soul. 
body, the material perspective, the soul, the transcendent spiritual perspective, where we say that the soul informs the body. So it's not a pure Darwinistic perspective where we're just biological matter or Cartesian perspective where we're res extensa, but we are that substantial unity. There's also the tendency, of course, to see that we're the ghost in the machine. Great album from the police, um, but not the great anthropology from, from Descartes. Sting good, Descartes bad. All right, for those of you who have, care about classic rock. Um, it's that mechanistic view of the body. We don't, we don't accept that. And again, I'm sure there are plenty of analogies that maybe y'all will refute me on this, that I've always liked the analogy of the soul of the body is, is a sponge to water. Water is not the same as the sponge, but they're so intertwined. Um, they're so connected. And of course, there's always a major dissimilitude. Understand that. Um, but that, that we are one. You're not really separating the body from the soul. In fact, when we, from the Catholic perspective, when you die and your soul goes to heaven, you're not, the human person doesn't go to heaven. The soul goes to heaven. The person and the body and the soul have to be connected. The soul, it's immortal, of course. It's created the moment of conception. It cannot die. We have rational souls. And the body informs, the soul informs the body where the body individuates the soul. And the soul is that spiritual dimension that grants us a deeper interior life. Um, he transcends creation because soul helps us to transcend material creation. Now, there's all, of course all kinds of debates over consciousness and where what faculties reside in the soul. I'm not going to get into that because I, somehow the soul interacts with the body. The, the soul interacts with the brain. Um, I am not one to necessarily say, well, these are the spiritual faculties reside in the soul and are the emotions right, the, the emotions reside in the soul. I, I'm not gonna get into that. Y'all can debate that at a later date, but it, it gives us this deep spiritual principle. The body, of course, we're gonna see a lot of this next uh, semester. There's the tendency in human history to see the body as evil, but Jansenistic, Manichaeistic perspective, John Paul II, emphasizes the importance of the body, particularly as a result of the Incarnation. When God became man, the body entered theology through the front door. Our, we've had a big emphasis on the body in the past, let's say, 100 years, 150 years, because it is part of the human person. It has dignity. It has value. It is the sacrament that reveals what is going on interiorly. Senses are located in the body, and the knowledge comes from that sense experience. But the body also imposes certain limits. That, that There are certain things we can and we cannot do. The ultimate one is we cannot on our own live forever, although we believe that we will be resurrected. But for the perspective of morality, and particularly sexual ethics, the, the big insight or the, the real thing that we want to focus on comes from John Paul II and Vatican II is that, that spousal meaning of the body. The body is meant for marriage, but more specifically, the body is meant for gift. 
created for the gift of self. We find fulfillment when we give of ourselves. We'll talk more about that later. So essentially also that the human person possesses an intellect and a will. All right. Again, how do we know things? How do we choose things? That's a different discussion. The intellect is primarily what separates us from animals, giving us the ability to perceive the truth and can make moral and rational decisions. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this before. Um, even though I don't think you should trust everything the specific author says, uh, making an exegesis of Genesis 2 and 3 and comparing it to comparative mythology uh, to other sort of Mesopotamian or Sumerian or, or ancient Near East myths, there are a lot of things that make the story of Eden different than the other ones. But in the other sort of uh, creation myths, the gods who create man or man and woman or whatever usually are kind of trickster gods. They want to trick man. But what are they normally trying, tricking man into not doing? Or what is it that, that man is usually pursuing that the gods don't want them to achieve? Yes, or immortality. Yeah. So there's usually some type of a fruit or some type of a an entity that if they were possess it or eat it, they would become immortal. Are you familiar? You know, these desires for immortality. But what's interesting is in this story, in the Judaic story, that's not the tree they were prohibited from eating from. What tree were they primarily prohibited from eating from? Knowledge of from, from what I understand, and I am not Joseph Campbell, but there is no other myth where the, the person is said, oh, look, hey, here's the tree to live forever, but don't worry about that until a bit later on, but don't eat for this tree of knowledge of good and evil. This guy's thesis is that that is there, and of course man eats it, and from this etiological perspective trying to describe origins of things, it makes the Judeo sort of perspective of man different in that man is essentially a moral being. I find that fascinating. Because we've eaten of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, man is primarily a moral being that is defined not by the whims of the gods. He's created. He's created for a purpose, but he uh, is able to make moral and rational choices. So I just find that interesting. Uh, of course, this is one exegesis, but uh, I, I really love to, to read those, those myths from the Bible and the different stories and to see how they differ from the pagan myths as the way that God chooses to reveal certain truths to the author to separate Israel from the nations. But I don't know what Dr. Masternak or whatever say about that, but man is a moral being. Uh, our conscience, as we'll see, is a function of the intellect. We have an interior life, a self-awareness, memory, imagination, all these things uh, exist in, in the mind, in our, in our human consciousness. 
we're conscious beings. But we also have a will, we have an ability to choose. We believe that reason, as we'll see next lesson, perceives the good that is to be done, or the perceived good to be done, and the will goes to choose that. So we have the ability to make moral decisions. Um, we're not a robot. We have a free will, and that there are various habits that perfect both the intellect and the will. So y'all have all studied that enough. I don't need to get into a lot of details. But one of the, the areas that we need to sort of focus on or can focus on when it comes to the moral theology of persons are the passions of the emotions. Catechism 1763 to 1766 has a whole part, a treatise on this. From 1763, the term passions belongs to the Christian patrimony. Feelings or passions or emotions or movements of the sensitive appetite that incline us to act or not to act in regard to something felt or imagined to be good or evil. They are natural components of the human psyche. They form the passageway and ensure the connection between the life of the senses and the life of the mind. Morally neutral by themselves, but they must be controlled by the reason of the will. We cannot allow our passions and our emotions to dictate morality, to dictate how that we act. And there are many passions. Uh, that's one of the, there's an interesting study that was done where they had a group of men and a group of women and said, I want you to explain or write out as many emotions as as that you think there are and so men hungry angry tired stressed wanting sex women oh let's draw a tree of the emotions and there because there is there's in general a wider variety of of emotional senses that women tend to feel. Now, what does that say? Maybe men, maybe we need to explore our emotions a little bit more sometimes and have a greater emotional uh, intelligence. Um, but, you know, there are all these different ways of understanding the emotions and how we react in certain situations. But I do believe that for a good moral life, a good human life, there needs to be a rich emotional intelligence, which men are not necessarily as good at as women. And, you know, we need to develop that. There used to be the Saturday Night Live skit. The older guys here will remember this. Frankenstein, Tonto, and uh, who's the other one? Uh, Frankenstein, Tonto, and Tarzan. Red good, fire bad. <laughs> Pretty much sums up men's emotional... Just go look it up. It's very, very funny. And then, of course, as humans, we have natural inclinations or desires. And this is something in Aquinas that Father Pinkers will develop. That this is connected to human nature. He basically says that we have five natural inclinations that are connected to our our, our, our natural, our human nature. Uh, inclination for the good, to preserve our being, 
to know the truth, to live in society, and to marry or to have sexual union. And these are not bad things. They're not passions and emotions, but these are things that we're driven for. And, and it is good to pursue them. We need to pursue them in a regulated manner, but it's good to pursue them. Uh, and so these are sort of, at least when it comes to the, the moral life, the essential elements that we would normally look at, uh, intellect, will, emotions, but although we can analyze the human person in his various parts and dimensions, we must try to see the human person in his or her entirety to experience reality as a person, not just as my intellect or my emotions or my will. There's an integrity there. And so in understanding and putting these pieces together and seeing how they interact with each other, as we're going to see next, next class, it gives a better understanding of moral action from the perspective of the acting person. But all of this sort of is, can be summed up in understanding the uniqueness of man in worldly creation. That we're different than the rest of creation. We're the only visible creature able to know and love his creator. We're the only creature, scripture says, that God willed for his own sake. And we're the only one called to share in God's own life. So it makes the human person different. And as a result of these and other things that we'll see, we have a tremendous dignity. So in concluding this section, before we go into more proper theological anthropology, there's another characteristic of the human person that the catechism really focuses in on and one that I think a lot of the times we don't talk about enough or we don't discuss enough. And that is man's inherent desire for the transcendent, for that which lies beyond himself and his own material being. All men search for the transcendent, meaning in a general sense that we search for meaning in our lives, a meaning that exists outside of ourselves. And we know this from experience. Man asks the deep questions. What is the meaning of existence? Is there a God? What is true and good? Go back to Veritatis Splendor 7. John Paul, the, the question that the rich young man asked Jesus. These are the questions we all ask ourselves. The problem is, is too often today we're too busy on our phones, to often ask that um, those deep questions. We don't think deeply. We don't have the time to think deeply that we probably should. But in reality, you know, asking these questions, what are we really searching for? We're searching for God. We're searching for God. And this is called, in traditional language, the Kapok's day. the capacity for God. The human person has a capacity for God, a capacity for the transcendent. The desire for God, this is Catechism 27, is written into the human heart. It's not something that um, we have to create for ourselves. 
second. Because man is created by God and for God. And God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. It's Augustine. You could say that this is sort of the, the principle of the exitus reditus. Here is God. We come from God, and we're always going back to him. And it's always going back to him. And, and these, the restlessness that I think a lot of times we see in people, and you're going to encounter in people as a priest, they're restless, partially because they're distracted by everything around them, but they're looking for a happiness and a fulfillment in created goods that are only, is only going to truly be found in God alone. And so he, he puts, we believe, this desire in our hearts, this desire for the transcendent. Yes, you could say uh, evolutionary biology will say, well, this evolved because man was looking for being or he perceived he wanted to impose order and creation, so he perceived this higher creature and this sort of passed down through epigenetic changes throughout history. Take it whatever you want. We have it. Man looks for meaning. One of the best books that I, I it's somewhat difficult to read, and it can be word salad because he's good at making up a big salad in his writing, is Luigi Giussani's The Religious Sense. How many of you read Giussani's Religious Sense? I, I would say from a Catholic perspective, it would be one of the more significant anthropological books written in the 20th century. Do you know who Giussani is? So Luigi Giussani was an Italian priest who, um, who founded, he worked with college students, and he founded Communion and Liberation, Comunione e Liberazione. Have you heard of CL, Communion and Liberation? Yeah, and so he's, he has a very particular language, a lingo. Uh, he's written a series of books. This one and the origin, one of, this is the religious sense is on anthropology and God. There's one on Christianity, the origins of the Christian claim, which are very interesting arguments for Christ. And there's one on the church. He's written a bunch of other stuff. And I think there's a CL group in town. I don't know who runs it. All right. Yeah. Are you, do you go? No. Yeah. So I mean, it's a, they, they, they have these discussions. They try to create community. It's some really, really good stuff. If anyone's interested, uh, it's not the Communio Study Circle that we are starting here, but Giussani and Balthazar, I'm, I'm pretty sure, were friends that knew each other. Um, Ratzinger preached his funeral. Go find, if you want to go, go find Ratzinger's homily from Giussani's funeral. Very, very interesting. Anyhow, but what happens is man can be confused and search for other things besides God. Showing the reality of sin and human freedom, a man goes and search for and creates other gods to give his life meaning. Augustine, we're looking for beauty outside of God. What is it? Chesterton's quote, the man, every man who goes to the brothel is looking for God. He's looking for happiness. He's looking for fulfillment. But he's not going to find it. He's not going to find it. You've got to find it only in the Lord. Yet he will only find answers and meaning for his existence. The true God reveals himself in Christ. We have to be seen 
in relationship to the Lord, we have to be seen in relation to Christ. As we've already seen, man can only understand himself in relation to Christ. Christ is the perfect Adam, the true man. Who he is and, 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 and how he acts teaches us, guides us as we participate in his life of how to act. So this idea of man and the capacity to receive God and his desire for God is the bridge that we're going to use to move us into the phrase or the, uh, the, the, that really, or the description that really gives us the underpinning of our true human dignity and an understanding of our proper way of acting. Anybody wants to give me that phrase, what it is? You give it to me in English or in Latin. Imago Dei. Man and woman created in the image and likeness of God. So we're going to look at that at our next lesson. We're going to take a little break. So just so you know, I wrote my thesis on this. So Imago Dei, so maybe a little bit more detailed than you really want, but... I think it's crucial to understanding particularly sexual ethics. So this is good. I can give you all a presentation of the Imago Dei here, which I didn't get to give to those guys, because if you understand what the Imago Dei is, then you're going to have a better understanding of moral action, but you'll also have a much better understanding of sexual ethics. So it's uh, 9.50. Why don't we take a little break and come back, and we'll start again at 10 or a little bit after.